I think there are times in which um, the people of God just need to kind of pause for just a second, and maybe it wasn't even planned uh, to do it when we were together, and just realize the goodness of God amongst us and what he has done for us as a people and as a church. And uh, tonight, as we worshiped him together, I was just overwhelmed at the talent level that God has placed in our church that leads us to the throne of God. And I just think God needs a glorified hallelujah for all of his goodness to us. Man, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming out and being with us. A shout out to our online people. We're glad to have you wherever you're at. Uh, we hear every week somebody new who's checking us out online, and we're just thrilled to have you with us today. So thanks for being here. It's good to have you. Many of you who have young children, uh, you have met, had the privilege of running into uh, Kim Yurton. Kim is our early childhood pastor here at Eastside. Kim is incredible. Uh, she does a fabulous job in that ministry for little kids here. Last week, Kim had one of the classes together one of the little kid classes, and she was teaching them stories uh, from the Old Testament. So these little kids were just kind of glued on her. And um, the daughter of our worship pastor, the little Miss Princess Ivy, if anybody has ever met Ivy, Ivy was in the class. And so all the kids were sitting there, and uh, Kim is teaching uh, these Bible stories. And she asked the, the kids the question, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? And um, Miss Ivy, in all of her wonderful sass that she has about her, raised her hand and said, don't ask me, I didn't do it. And so everybody kind of laughed about it. And Kim thought that was so funny that when she got home, she called Ivy's mom. And she told Ivy's mom the story. Hey, I had the kids all together asking who knocked down the walls of Jericho. And Ivy said she didn't do it. And Abby is a wife of Aquila, one of our wonderful young mamas here in our church. Uh, she listened to Kim, and then she responded with kind of a little protective attitude. And she said, now, Kim, if my baby said she didn't do it, then she didn't do it. <laughs> and Kim was kind of taken back by that a little bit. And so the next day at church, uh, Kim was kind of a little bit of shock about that. And so she brought it up to Aquila. And she said, Aquila, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but in class I was telling a story about the, the walls, and I asked you to knock them down. Ivy said she didn't do it. And so I called Abby, and I think Abby got her feelings hurt because she said, if my baby said she didn't do it, then she didn't do it. And I don't know if you heard about that. And Aquila said, oh, yeah, I heard about it. I heard about it. And um, he, he, he went on to say, so, uh, and, and if you all know Aquila, you're going to understand this. He goes, yeah, I heard about it. So I called a family meeting last night, and I came up with five critical questions that I asked both Abby and Ivy, and then I put them together in an Excel spreadsheet and evaluated the answers and the intricacies of the stories between the two. And I hate to tell you, Kim, but research doesn't lie. Ivy was never near that wall. 
And now Kim is really worried about the spiritual depth of our staff. And so she goes to talk to the lead pastor, some knucklehead named Hastings. And he's in his conference room practicing five-foot putts on his new floor. And Kim says, hey, um, I just got to tell you what happened. And she kind of laid that out. And, um, and, and he listened and he said, Kim, I'll tell you what, that probably ought to move up a level for me. Um, I write sermons. I don't fix walls. And so maybe I'll call the chairman of the elders. His name is Steel Cook. And so Kim sent him a detailed email of everything happening all week. And Theo responded by thanking Kim for the attention. And then he went on to say, you know, we're doing a renovation project on the building. Surely we can add one more wall to the project. He contacted our facility manager, David Metter, told him the whole story, asked him to take care of it. And last we knew, Metter was down at Lowe's, walking through the aisles, looking for tuba fours made by some company called Jericho. <laughs> well, I'm going to try to straighten all that up, okay? I'm going to try to come to an understanding of really what happened with Joshua and his effort as the man of God leading the effort to knock down those crazy walls in Jericho. Now, I, I got to share this with you. It's a more personal thing, but it just kind of rocked me a little bit. It's one of those weeks where I just kind of shake up my ha- head and I kind of laugh at what, what God does. I decided this subject about the walls of Jericho last August, 10 months ago. I had no idea that on this weekend, we would be asking our congregation to give a special offering of $150,000 to renovate a bunch of walls. I didn't know it would happen this week, and floors, and equipment, and parking lots. And I just sometimes sit back and laugh how God knew all of that before. Isn't that right? He knew all of that was going to happen. So gang, that's where we're at. This is where we're at. This is the week that we are participating as a church to beautify our building, to renovate that which was broken, and to make beautiful that which had become old. And it's been a joy to see it. And I know some of you are on a buzz. You've seen it out there. And this is the week that we come together and help pay for the rest of it. And this is the week. And many people have done that already. I want to thank you for that. But this weekend is it, okay? That's where we're at. And so if you've not been a part of that special offering, I want to encourage you uh, to jump on that, okay? I want to encourage you to take care of that. You can do it through our online giving, and that's going to happen through Sunday night, okay? So from tonight to Sunday, you can get online. You can give to this project. Just make sure you drop down the tag marker there and put home improvement, and that's what we'll go through. You can do our offering boxes. They're back there. Jump on those things and, and put your offering in there. You can mail it, but if you're going to mail it, do it quick, okay? And then we'll come in here next Thursday, and we're going to announce what God did in our church through us to beautify his building. And we're going to announce it right here on Thursday. As long as you promise, don't say a word when you leave, because we want to surprise people on Sunday too, okay? So that's coming, and get ready for it, so this is it. Now, with all that said, let's get back to this Jericho story. One of the great stories of faith in Hebrews 11. And man, I've had a, I've had a ball this week jumping into that and diving into uh, what happened in that story and how it applies to our lives today. So the heartbeat of it all 
And you'll remember this, we talked about it a couple weeks ago when we started this series, and, and Neil jumped on it again last week and reminded us that the heartbeat of all is verse 6 in chapter 11. Let's look at it. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I, I need that to get under your grill a little bit. I need it to kind of settle in your spirit. I need it to mess with you a little bit. I mean, who here doesn't want God to be pleased with you? Everybody wants that. And, and so the author of Hebrews says right out of the gate, now if that's what you want, if you want the pleasure of God to look at you, I go, man, you, I'm just so pleased with you. If you want that, you have to figure out this thing about faith. You gotta figure it out, not only what it means, but how you live it. And the author believed that was such a big deal that from this point in the sixth verse, he then started mentioning all these examples of people who figured it out. A lot of people in the Old Testament who understood what faith was and they lived that faith. And the author is trying to say, you gotta figure out their stories so they can become your stories. And when they are your stories, then the pleasure of God will wrestle upon you. And so that's just kind of the, the gist of where Hebrews 11 starts. And so what we've been looking at is we've been looking at some of the examples that he gives to us. And on this weekend, we are zeroing in on that story that many in this room have probably heard about, and that is this thing that happened in a city called Jericho. So he brings it up. Later in the chapter, verse 30, let's look at how this author said. He said, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. Now, there's something that hits me about that verse. And to be honest with you, I don't even think it's important, okay? It's almost fluff, just throw it out there. But it just kind of strikes me a little bit that something this big is mentioned with such brevity. One verse. Whatever happened to Jericho, when the author goes back to it, he calls it in and says, now this is an example of living by faith that brings the pleasure of God. And all he gave us was one verse. That's all he gave us. Now let's contrast that a little bit to last week when we looked at Moses. And Moses, as Neil taught us, God gave that story in Hebrews 11 Five verses. So how come Moses gets five verses and Joshua only gets one? Let me, let me give you a little bit more about that that will kind of rack your brain a little bit. If you look at how the actual wording happened in the original language, what we know is that when he talked about Moses in those five verses, it had 68 words. He gave 68 words to Moses. But this, in the original Greek language, he only gave nine. Moses got 68 words. Joshua got nine. Now, some of y'all thinking right there, oh, thank God, that means this sermon's going to be a lot shorter than what Neil, 68 to 9. Well, you are as confused as Miss Little Ivy is, okay? Because there's a lot in those nine verses. So, but I think it's probably a good idea maybe to get a little concept of what really happened in the backstory. Maybe there are only nine verses because the author thought they knew the story. 
and just mentioning it, all these people would, oh yeah, we know, we know everything about Hebrew, in, in the book of Hebrews. We, we know all about that. And so you and I may not be there. And so maybe it's a good idea to kind of look at some of the backstory, and then you're going to see how the backstory comes up and what it teaches us about living as people of faith. So here's the backstory. Many of you remember this. So we got the nation of Israel, and they are encamped and enslaved in Egypt. Everybody knows that story. And so God wants to move them from Egypt and get them out of Egypt and move them to a different land, a promised land that God gave them, and the name of that is Canaan. And so God's hope in the whole backstory of this whole thing is they are in Egypt and God's got to get them to Canaan. And that's where they're going to end up. And that, that today is where Israel is. It is in a land called Canaan. If you looked at Israel on a map, that's exactly where the... That gang is why when you see on the news about the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians over the West Bank, that conflict is never going to be over because the Jews are never going to give that land up. God gave it to them. So here we've got, we've got Israel in Egypt. We've got to get them over here to Canaan. And so God gets them out of Egypt. You know the story. He sends Charlton Heston and all the horses drown. So you all know that. And so, and so there's a lot of years that pass. That's another story for another day. A lot of years pass. And now they are ready to go into Canaan. They're ready to take the land that God has promised them. That's the backstory of Jericho. Everything is. And so when they are on the edge of going into Canaan, God makes this clarification. There are some very bad, very evil people in Canaan. And I need you to get them out of Canaan so that the purity of God through his people can be there. So what God asked them to do is begin to drive them out of Canaan. Now, if you think about that, that's kind of amazing, and you look at it, and it's interesting that the very first city that they have to drive evil people out of is Jericho. It's the first city we got to get bad people out of. It is also one of the most strongest, fortified, largest cities in all of Canaan. Now, everybody stay with me. Don't lose me. I promise we're going to get down into your business, okay? But stay with me here. Think about this. Why on earth, why on earth would God choose the first city for them to fight to be the strongest city? Why did he do that? Doesn't it make sense to you to, for God to say, there, you know, there's a little camp of kind of wimpy dudes over here. Go take them out. You know, get a little confidence. Believe in yourself a little. Doesn't it make a whole lot more sense? Why attack the biggest, most fortified city in all of Canaan? Why did he do that? Well, we're not given specific answer, but I, I tend to think that God was trying to tell them, if you learn how I can defeat Jericho, you will never doubt my power again. I think that's what God was trying to say. And so if you're in this room, I want this to be heavy with you. I want you to hear this. One of the benefits and blessings of going through really hard times in life, and some of you in this room, you've been through some stuff. 
And you know what it's like to really face some tough stuff, but God got you through that. And one of the benefits of that is that if you've seen God help you in a tornado, you don't freak out over little storms, do you? Because you learned he can deal with tornadoes. I, I crack up sometimes when I, when I see Christians kind of metaphorically crying about their fingernail got hurt, you know, and somebody else has, you know, lost a leg in a battle, and you just want to go up and punch them in the throat. And I think maybe that's happening here. That God says, let's take care of the biggest, baddest group there is, and you will never doubt my faith again. And so here they are, ready to move into Jericho, and God begins to reveal to them, here's how we're going to do it. And he shares with them the battle plan. Now, many of you know the battle plan. You've heard it. But I want to read it for you. It's only three verses long. I just want to read it. I want you to hear it. And I want to show you why it's important to your life and mine. From Joshua chapter 6 is where the actual battle happened. Starting in the third verse, God says this to Joshua. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priest blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout and then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. And that's the battle plan. You didn't hear anything about military talk, did you? Nothing in there. You heard this crazy plan. And so as far as I know, there's nobody in this room, to my knowledge, who's dealing with any kind of needing to take a city or to occupy an enemy. So why are we reading this? Why is this in the Bible for us? Why did he bring it up in the book of Hebrews? Why? Why is this crazy thing being taught to us? I, I think there might be some doctrinal things that are probably necessary for us to see, like the transcending power of God. I wonder if the story's there so that you can I understand that God doesn't need military fighter jets to do his work. His power is beyond anything that we would consider normal and rational. It's a transcending power. I think that might be one of the reasons that it's there. I, I think also there might be a doctrinal concept of the purity of God. I see, I see that in the story. That God says, my people are going into Canaan. They will not occupy it while evil people are there. Because good and evil are not to cohabitate. And so if Israel is going to go into Jericho, then the people of Jericho have got to get out. And so I think there's a concept of the purity of God in this story. But when you really think through all those kinds of things, the thing that struck me, the thing that really dealt with me personally, and I'm going to share some of that with you today, is the manner in which God knocks walls down. That struck me in this story. And I'm not talking brick and mortar. 
I'm not talking plywood. I'm not talking physical structures that fall down. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the walls and the strongholds that exist in our life that prevent us from experiencing the joy and favor and pleasure of God in our life. That's what I'm talking about when I say walls. And when you think of that term, there are walls all through this room right now. Because all of us know about those seasons or those moments of life where some kind of nasty stronghold built itself around us and prevented us from enjoying the goodness of God. And sometimes that wall might be a relationship that isn't firing on all cylinders and it's just sucking the energy out of you. And sometimes it might be a financial hole that you don't know how you're ever going to crawl out of. And other times it might be anxiety and depression that is preventing you from even crawling out of bed. I mean, there's more walls in our society than Lowe's could ever sell. Addictions and health scares and challenges with kids and trouble at work and grief and loneliness. It, it would scare us if we could see all of the walls that are in this room right now. And if you just paused for that for a second and you just thought about your life, you, not the person behind you or in front of you or around you or somebody back home or at work or at school, just you. And where have, where have evil, demonic strongholds and walls just wrap themselves around you and you wondered, how in the world will God ever knock these walls down? And here's what I think happens, is the way he did it in Jericho is the way he might do it with you. And so I think we're all on the same page when we read this story, that we've all been there waiting on, God, what are you gonna do to get me out of this conflicting stronghold that is around? What are you gonna do? And can I share with you what God might do? And I'm going to use a term when I refer to what God does in these events as he normally does this. And what I mean by that, you can never put God in a box. And the things that I'm about to say, God might choose to do something totally different from that. Or God may choose to do nothing. But I can tell you normally, what he does at Jericho is what he does in my life and what he does in your life. And so I want to show you some of those things that come up in this story in Joshua 6. And you just kind of listen and you ask yourself, dude, is, is that going on for me right now? Is that happening to me? So let me give you an example of what I mean. Here's, here's one of them that's really, really big for me personally, okay? I wrote this for me, all right? So if it doesn't apply to you, uh, work on your grocery store list or whatever you got to do. But this is me. I'm preaching to me, okay? So y'all with me, okay? So it's going to take about four and a half hours, but hang in there. We got to get it. This is me. Watch this. God's power... Okay, his power to knock a wall down, no matter what wall it is, normally, 
Not always, but normally God's power will require your obedience. Man, that's big. That is so big. That is incredibly big. And you can see it in this story. There were not going to be any walls fall before the priests grabbed the ark and the fighting men put their marching boots on. Nothing was going to happen until those guys started marching. Because here's the theme of the whole Jericho story. Everybody watch this. Don't miss it. Obedience preceded power. Power waited on obedience. That's so, so important. Go back to Hebrews 11 verse 30. We looked at it, but now you'll see what I'm talking about. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. Somebody say this word. Okay. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. There were not going to be any walls that fall until they started to march. Power always will follow obedience. It's incredibly important to know that. And there's nothing new in that whole story. There's nothing new about that. Because if we took Joshua 6, where all this is told to us, and we just backed up a little bit. We just backed up a couple chapters. And between Egypt, when they leave, and when they get into Canaan, they'll attack Jericho first. But right before that, there is this large river they gotta get across. They gotta get across this river. And they'd done that before, remember? When they, left, you remember that all? They, they, they did all that when they left Egypt and God dried it out. And so now here they are and they're going into, but there's another body of water. Charlton Heston got to show up again. And so now what are we going to do? How are we going to get all these people across? How's that going to happen? And so God commands, here's, it's a beautiful part of the story. They're standing on the riverbank and God says, okay, get the priest, have him pick up the ark and walk out into the water. Get all the priests out there, have them hold the ark. Now let me ask you a really dumb question. Did the waters split and dry up as a result of these guys' feet holding an ark in the water, did, did God need that? No, God didn't need that. God just wanted to know if they would obey him before he threw his power in. Do you see that? So, so check out how it happens in the uh, book of Joshua. Let's look at that verse from chapter 3. Now, the Jordan, that's the river they're going to cross, is at flood stage all during harvest. So it's, it's bigger and deeper than what is normal. Yet... As soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. Water did not stop until the priests put their feet in the water. What's that mean? What's that mean? Is that God normally will send power if we first obey. Now, because of that, I want you to think about your wall. Whatever your wall is, and maybe you're one of the blessed people, and you don't have a wall right now, and life's good. I say hallelujah to you. And you say, but I can remember a wall, okay? I remember it. And some of y'all might say, I don't have a wall. 
and I don't remember a wall. I've never had a wall. I feel bad for you because, brother, you're about to get slammed, okay? Because you're going to get a wall, right? Am I right with that? Okay, I want you to think about your wall. Just think about your wall. And here's our tendency. Here's our tendency. God wants you to just knock this wall down. When you're going to come in and take care of this and settle this issue. And so we put it all on God. That's our tendency. Or we might put it on other people who caused the wall. Anybody good at that? If, if she would just do what she needs to do, I wouldn't be dealing with this wall. Right? Am, am I the only one? Uh, finger pointing? Okay. If they would do it or God would do it, well, let me post something to you. How about you? How about you taking the next right step that you know you got to take? And our tendency as humans to say, well, okay, I'll, I'll do that as soon as she does, or as soon as he does, or as soon as God does. And God normally sits back and waits for you to do the right thing, and then his power shows up. And the tendency that we have is that we're going to obey once the power shows up. And I'm telling you, normally, that is not how it works. It normally requires you to move first. So think about whatever wall you got. And I'm one of your pastors. I know you got walls because you talk to me about them. So think about what those, those strongholds are and just deal with this. What is your next move? What is the right thing for you to do? Normally God is going to provide a power, but normally he will not until you move first. Imagine what it would be like someday to find out that God was on deck, ready to blow the wall apart, but you wouldn't move. That would be one of the saddest things ever to hear. That's a general thought that comes up in that text. Let me show you another way that God normally will work in the midst of these, and that is that God's revelation will normally require your trust. Now, this is fascinating to me. And let me, let me tell you a little story that kind of gives you an idea of what I'm talking about. There, there, was, there was an incident, a situation that occurred in my hometown over this last week. And, and because of that particular situation, it caused a lot of people who used to live there to have some communication among each other uh, this week because of what happened in that town. And so we talked with each other. And one of the people that I got into a conversation with was a pastor on the West Coast in California who was my Jeremy. And if you say, what do you mean by that? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. A number of months ago when our middle school pastor preached on a youth Sunday here, he talked about this guy named Jeremy who had a major spiritual impact in his life. 
And, and Silas told us when he preached that everybody's got Jeremy's in their life. And that kind of became a code word for us here at Eastside. And we all talk about who's your Jeremy, who's invested in you, who's made an impact in you. And we all talk about who's Jeremy. The real Jeremy probably doesn't know at all that his name took our church over. So we all talk about Jeremy's. Ed was one of mine. And so Ed and I were, were talking last week, and I, I said to him, hey, Ed, let me kind of change subjects here, and I want to talk to you about the fact that do you remember a million and a half years ago when you looked at me and said, dude, you got to go to Bible college? He said, yeah, I remember that. I said, man, you looked at me and you said, you, you got to go to Bible college. I'm 18 years old, and he goes, Dave, you got to go to Bible college. And I said to him, I, how, do I, how do I go to Bible college, man? I am, I'm enrolled in another university, okay? It's being paid for by my dad and some scholarship stuff. And so how do I, how do I change all that? He said, I don't know. You just got to go to Bible college. I said, dude, I, I am in, I'm in an engineering program. I want to be an engineer. I've always wanted to be an engineer. I've studied through high school to be an engineer. I, I think I'm going to be good at an engineer. How do you go from engineer and just become a preacher? He said, I don't know. You just got to go to Bible college. I said, how do, how do I even do that? I don't even know how to do that, man. I don't know the first step in that, what's going to happen, how the end of the story. He goes, I don't know any of that, dude. You just got to go to Bible college. And I thanked him last week for having the backbone to look at me and say to me the first thing that I needed to do, the next step that I needed to take, and he was very clear about that. And I went on to say to him, Man, I don't know how I'm going to do any of this. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to lose scholarship money. I don't think my dad will support me. He said, I don't know about any of that, man. You just got to go to Bible college. And I told Ed, thank you for being persistent with me and letting me know what my first step was, even though you didn't know any of the other steps. You just knew the first step. And so what I heard from my Jeremy, I heard what the first play of the game was. And I asked him, what's the game plan for the rest? I don't know. I just know the first play. And I want you to know that normally, everybody listen to this very carefully, normally in God's plan to knock walls out of your life so that you can experience the favor and glory of life that he's given to you. Normally, he will reveal to you only your first move. And we wanna know everything. We wanna know what the whole thing's gonna look like, and God didn't work that way. And I was somewhat embarrassed the first time I saw that in that story. Because we read where God appears to Joshua and he lays it out. We're gonna do this on the first day, this on the second day, third day, fourth day, all the way through sixth day, seventh day. We're gonna get everybody, we're gonna walk seven different times. We're gonna blow trumpets, people are gonna scream, walls gonna come down. The whole plan, we just read it. And then Joshua gets the military guys together. I don't know if you've ever seen this. He gets the military guys together and here's what he tells them. He only tells them what we're gonna do on day one. That's all he tells them. Look at it on the screen. Let's look at this. 
So Joshua gets them all together. Joshua knows the whole game plan. And Joshua says, take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it and march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. And that's all he said. He didn't say nothing about day two, day four, day six, nothing about trumpets, nothing about screaming, nothing about walls. He just said, this is what we're gonna do today. And if I'm there, I'm wondering, come on, dude, there's more to the story. And I can tell you that the normalcy of God is often where he does not reveal to you the full story. Why is that? Because he wants you to trust him. He wants you to trust him. And if I just do the right thing that God is calling me to do, I'm not gonna put it on anybody else, I'm not gonna put it on God, I'm gonna do the right thing. This is my next step. What's the step? I don't know. I'm gonna trust that God knows what the rest of that is. I'm just gonna do the first thing. And so I told Ed when we were talking, I said, dude, you just said, man, you gotta go to Bible college. That's all you said, you just gotta go to Bible college. I had no idea that my dad would eventually support my college education. I had no idea that my home church would start sending me money to pay for school. I had no idea that a little church would contact me my sophomore year and say, you can come here every weekend and practice on us. If anybody goes to heaven, they do, okay? They get to go. I had no idea that God would introduce me to a cute little thing who would agree to marry me and be the backbone of everything I've ever done. See, if God laid all that out, said here's what's gonna happen, and he lays it all out, guess what? It wouldn't have required any trust on my part whatsoever. But he seldom does that. And if you're right now and you're in the grip of this stronghold, and man, I don't know how it's gonna come down. I don't know what God's gonna do. Now, I know, I know my next step. I know that. But man, I don't know what step two is. I don't know what step eight is. And God says, we ain't gonna worry about step one yet. Just go to Bible college. Just do the right thing. And so I, I want that. My hope is, is that is heavy with you right now. My hope is over the next several hours that that is, that is almost haunting you. How are these walls going to get knocked down in my life? And it comes down to the fact that you know, you know what the right thing to do is. You know that. And God's waiting on you to do it before he reveals anything about the rest of the plan. That's a powerful, powerful principle from Jericho. I'm going to show you one more and be real brief. We're going to be done here in a minute. Um, you know by now the length of a minute, okay? So hang with me here. I want to show you one more, and it'll be quick, but the, this is really big to me. And I see this happening in the text, that God's timing will normally require your perseverance. Now, here's the, here's the question, kind of the elephant in the room of the Jericho story. Why seven days? Why seven days? Could God have done this in one day? Yeah. Could he have done it in three days? Yeah. Could he have done it in no days? What's the answer? Yeah. Why seven? Why seven? Now, the, um, 
the, the kind of stuffy attitude, arrogant, um, intelligent Bible scholars say, well, there's an answer to that, duh. God's trying to establish in motion, getting going on the perfect number seven that is used symbolically throughout the Bible. So God's trying to establish that here with the number seven. It takes seven days to do this. And as a teacher of the book of Revelation, if you're with us in that study, man, I go, yeah, that's right. I, I agree with that because seven's a big number. It's an important number. I get all that. But let me tell you about that idea that it took seven because he was establishing it. Let me tell you the, the literal um, uh, theological response to that. Hockey puck, okay? That's baloney. Use whatever metaphor you want to use. Here's why it took seven days. And hang on, because this will rock you. It took seven days because God wanted to know if they'd quit walking after day three or day five. He wanted to know, will you persevere to the end? Now, we're, we're up under some grills right now, and we're grabbing on some nerves of some people that might not like what you're hearing right now, and you might be angry at me at saying this, but what God does in lengthening the knocking down of laws, walls has the purpose behind it to teach you to quit quitting when it gets hard. And when we went back to the Revelation study that I mentioned earlier, if you've been with us in that, you know that throughout that book, John over and over says there is a key difference between people who end up in heaven and people who end up in the lake of fire. And what is one of the key differences? The ability to persevere when things aren't going right. Christians need to hear that. That when walls get built in our life through the force of evil, maybe even through the force of people around us who are causing that, the heart of God wants to know, will you quit right when you're down? Will you quit when it gets hard? Will you quit on the fifth day and the sixth day when you're tired of walking around the city? Will you quit? It took seven days, not because God had to get ready. It took seven days because God had to get you ready. There's an enormous difference of that. And so the challenge for any of us who find ourselves trying to figure out these crazy walls in our life is to understand the horror someday of hearing that maybe when you quit, maybe when you quit and you gave up, maybe it was day six and God was planning to show up tomorrow. You remember the dad who popped up at his son's t-ball game a little late and the game's already going and he runs out of the car late from work and he peeks in the dugout and he sees his son sitting on the bench and got a big old smile on his face and he's punching his glove and he's all excited and dad says, man, I'm here, son, I'm here. What's the score? 
And his son looks at him and says, we're getting beat 21 to nothing, Dad. And Dad says, man, you look really excited. How come you're so excited? He says, we ain't even been up to bat yet. <laughs> so just maybe, just maybe, just maybe, hear me, hear me, just maybe God hasn't been up to bat yet. Faith doesn't quit before God gets his turn with the bat. Father, thank you for being one we can trust. Thank you for being intimately connected with our lives, particularly when they're surrounded with walls of Jericho. And I just pointedly ask God that you will clarify in the heart exactly like you did for me this week. We'd clarify in the heart of anyone who's engaged this lesson that they would know the right step to take And they would do it knowing that you will respond with the bat. Amen.